Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. There was a time when science and public health were not controversial. There were good reasons for the trust. Because of advances in fighting infectious disease, life expectancy materially increased. The scourge of smallpox was eradicated, and the polio vaccine brought the crippling disease under substantial international control. Those days are long gone. We live in bitterly divisive times, and the authority of science, as it is applied in public policy, no longer necessarily prevails. Indeed, some, myself included, worry that science has become unduly ideological. There is no question that the science sector is sometimes used as a political cudgel in our culture wars. With the coming of the COVID pandemic, public health is also looked upon by some with increasing suspicion. To say the least, this isn't a healthy atmosphere for the country or for the furtherance of scientific advancement. What can be done to ease these divisions? My guest today has some important ideas. Dr. J. Benjamin Hurlbut is an associate professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. He earned his Ph.D. in the history of science at Harvard University in 2010. He was a postdoctoral fellow in the program on science, technology, and society at Harvard Kennedy School. His research lies at the intersection of science and technology studies, bioethics, and political theory. He is also the author of Experiments in Democracy, Human Embryo Research, and the Politics of Bioethics, which was published in 2017. In short, he knows what he speaks of. Ben, welcome to Humanize. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you on. You know, your work uh, seeks to conciliate the pronounced rifts that have opened in society between the experts and, and science class and many of the people they are supposed to serve. What got you interested in that field? You know, I've always been interested in the in the social position of science, you might say. Science, of course, is not just some body of knowledge or techniques, but is a social institution and one of the most important social institutions of modernity that, of course, came into being around the same time as we began to build secular political institutions. And so I think that understanding the ways in which science as social institution, as form of epistemic, of knowledge, but also social, political, and moral authority um, sits in in uh, the context of modern life is a crucial question. And as you were pointing out, you know, it's, it's also an eminently practical one. It touches down in everyday life in profound ways. 
You know, there was a time when science and public health were among the most trusted sectors of society. And as I mentioned, that's no longer true. What happened? Well, I, I'm actually a little bit hesitant to harken back to some good old days in which everything was perfect. Of course, public health, uh, you know, the, the public health emerges as a formation in conjunction with the rise of, of the modern state, basically, um, when there is, you know, the central authority that takes responsibility for the well-being of its people. So you can date that to, say, in the United States, progressive era, um, late 19th and early 20th century with, you know, rise of urbanization and industrialization and transformation of the administrative state. You can, you can locate it earlier on the front, on the frontispiece, the famous frontispiece of Hobbes Leviathan. Um, if you look closely at one area, there is a, there's a section where the streets are empty, but for two figures in plague masks. And so, and so the epidemic and the security, the securitization of the population under conditions of, of public health emergency were, you know, part of what was the sort of ingredient in Hobbes imagination of, of the social contract. Um, I think, however, that one of the things that has happened maybe in the last century and certainly in, in um, recent years in American politics is a notion that, somehow public public health and the institutions responsible for public health stand on their own not so much because in situations of emergency we need um strong and authoritative leadership um but because they are authorized by expertise um and that i think is the challenge the ways in which expertise is drawn upon deferred to contested relied upon Etc. in in a political community, and and we've kind of gone off the rails. That, in that, that's kind of interesting. I was going to bring this up a little later, but let's talk about it now. I have made a distinction in my own work between quote following the experts close quote, which we're often told we're supposed to do, and public policymakers hearkening to expertise, which of course is required for them to make wise decisions. Why do you think there's been that dichotomy created? You know, it's um, making policy entails taking responsibility, entails making judgments, uh, and relying upon expert input is subtly different from deferring to expert input as though in the production of evidence-based policy, all that matters is the evidence and the policy just sort of happens automatically. No, I mean, judgments are made about what is right and good for a society. But furthermore, judgments are made about what needs to be known and how it should be known. I think the pandemic itself is quite a fascinating a, a global experiment in the ways different societies have taken dimensions of life uh, in relation to public health as as needing to be known or not known, right? Yeah. And I think just looking across different societies, the way health has been understood and acted upon has been quite different. So there's a nexus of judgment there. Yeah, that's interesting. I was, again, was going to bring this up a little later too, but you, you did a study of, I think, 16 countries uh, in which you kind of measured, you and your uh, colleagues measured uh, the public and science response to the pandemic. And, and you had different categories. And you said the only country that actually ended up with the kind of divisions between um, what the, quote, science versus anti-science supposedly 
uh, was the United States. What is it about this country that that led to that kind of um, bitter uh, divides over something that I think could have been uh, an issue that brought us together? That is a common health emergency. So in this comparative study, um, which is which of which I'm a sort of um, secondary player in, uh, we have looked at in. A, as nuanced and contextualized a way as possible, the policy responses to COVID across these 16 countries. And I think generally one thing that we've observed is that expertise, reliance on science has functioned best in um, what we called consensus societies, societies in which there's already a sense of the right relations between a expert and political judgment, the right ways upon which to right ways for relying upon, questioning, challenging, contesting, evaluating, um, et cetera, um, the forms of expert knowledge that guide policy. And the situation that we've got in the U.S., I think that there's, you know, it's a mischaracterization to say that there are the pro-science and the anti-science. There's the faction that valorizes science and the faction that that ignores it or denies it. I agree with that in completely. Fact, if, yeah. If one, if one looks at the tenor of controversy in the U.S., you know, around the COVID pandemic response, but in other domains as well, it's not the experts versus, versus the, the people who are anti-expert. It's contestation over whose expertise is the correct expertise. Um, you know, it's, it's a different competing experts and some on the left may say that the that the rights that that the experts who are speaking on the right are false experts and vice versa um, but nevertheless the question is about who has the right knowledge and back of that is a notion that the right knowledge is the foundation for policy and action and in fact the foundation for policy and action is the development of of a political context within which uh a, a society can arrive at judgments about what kinds of knowledge are the right knowledge. Do you think part of the problem has become social media and uh, and perhaps cable television and so forth that seeks to, in order to gain uh, uh, clicks or to gain um, uh, audience uh, share, uh, are actually exacerbating problems that might not be uh, as bad if we had a more uh, measured and rational discussion? So I, I mean, I think absolutely these technologies are facilitating the breakdowns that we're experiencing but to make point to them as the sole cause of them seems to me incorrect in fact you know expert knowledge is also moving faster and and uh less de deliberately um through vectors of social media i think that this as a sort of space for reflection and deliberation they are absolutely defective um forms of public sphere you might say and it's and it leads to demagoguery it seems to me yeah although i i again am hesitant to point to these as the sole cause oh i agree i mean with they you. certainly exacerbate the pathology but one does have to ask the question i mean what is back of it i mean what are these what are these platforms amplifying and can we attack can we address whatever is being amplified by these platforms? And then maybe the platforms become less relevant. Oh, that's interesting. Do you perceive that there is a, a general value system distinction to be made between the people who are, you know, working in the sciences, particularly the establishment, uh, science establishment, 
and the people that they're supposed to be serving us. I think one of the fascinating and disheartening things that has unfolded over the course of the pandemic are the transformations of questions about what's important in life, how we should live, including especially in the context of a public health emergency, um, and what the what the data shows, what the experts say, et cetera. It's a transmutation. So, you know, for example, early in the early days of the pandemic, questions were emerging about religious worship. Should people attend mass and receive communion? Or should that crucial dimension of their spiritual lives be displaced by epidemiological concerns or at that point predictions um, and, you know, mass goes online yep. or whatever, which for many people meant just went away completely. Yep. Um, that's a, you know, I mean, th those are questions of balancing. Those are, uh, those are absolutely difficult questions. And, but and to let, say let that, me, let me get a point here. Science can't tell the yep. answer to that. Right, exactly. Uh, science exactly. can can tell us what the consequences might be of allowing mass to be attended, or church right. services, or concerts, etc. But it can't tell us uh, whether that is the proper policy in terms of the overall health of society. Absolutely, it can inform that, right? But the ways in which a policy making process and what that really means is a deliberative process in which questions of value are confronted directly, the way that process makes use of expert input. I mean, that's the question. And, and in my, my you know, it, it's been striking how few fora there have been for contending with those value laden questions. Yeah. About what dimensions of life can be put on pause and what dimensions of life can't. What dimensions are essential and what are not. What is being abrogated um, and what can and should be abrogated under these exceptional circumstances and what can't. And so instead, we've had fights over whether, you know, masks work or not. That's a very interesting thing. And, and of course, it strikes me just listening to you. That's not something you can start when the crisis hits. It's something right. that needs to be dealt with before the crisis hits so people are prepared to deal with these kinds of conflicting value systems and policy choices. So I would say absolutely. Not that the specific questions can necessarily be dealt with in advance, although some of them can, but rather the capacity building, the institutional spaces, the habits of deliberation, the, the, the um, recognition and affirmation of questions which and values which will be contested and which have to be dealt with through democratic modalities. I, I think that we've had some serious attenuation in our kind of institutional capacity to do those things in this country. And we're seeing the effects. Yeah, I, I quite agree with that. And it, it, um, it seems to me that, uh, that's because perhaps the lay public has said, well, I don't have a right to an opinion because this is science. And I think that is a, a um, kind of a, a value system or a, um, a set of uh, presumptions that many in the scientific community have furthered because they have basically said, leave it to us. We are the experts. We know what's right and what's wrong. Just, uh, you just give us the money to do the, the research and, and we'll provide the benefits. Am I being unduly cynical there? I mean, I think, I, I think maybe I'll be even more cynical to <laughs> say that, that I don't think it's so much that the lay public has said, I have nothing to say here. It's, it's rather, a. Uh, a sort of regime of expertise. It's the 
it's the technocracy that says you don't have anything to say here and we indeed at least you know some 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 of us in the public have bought into that you know experts know best it is of course correct that experts know best but it is it is not a a question of beginning with expertise and then moving on to to public judgment public judgment begins with the delegation of responsibility to experts to know on behalf of the public that delegation versus appropriation seems to me absolutely fundamental to the fabric of democracy and yet what we're seeing is a sort of appropriation in the form of assertion that delegation ought to happen but you can't just you know automatically demand you can't demand delegation that hasn't actually been authorized that that produces legitimacy problems and i think those are the precisely the kinds of problems that we're seeing yeah and when you say experts know best they know best in a particular limited sphere they don't know best generally uh, throughout society, because you're going to have to have different areas of, of uh, expertise. For example, you know, in education, the experts could say, well, if we keep the kids out of school, there'll be less transmission of COVID. Some others will say, yeah, but if we do that, you're going to have an increase in suicidal ideation among school children and a regression of their education. So, you know, which way do you go is not an issue, again, that science can determine. Right. I think it's an actually an excellent example because it points to two issues. One is the the ways in which a fundamental public values come into the picture or don't. So we didn't, for, for the most part, we didn't ask the question, do we have a fundamental obligation? Is there a human right to education that is being abrogated in putting children online in the name of protecting more vulnerable populations? right is a sacrifice a forced sacrifice being made we didn't we, we pretty much didn't ask that question and second the there is a sort of fragmentation of of expertise we say public health but actually both of those things that you just described are dimensions of public health it's just that if we have a cdc if we have an epidemiological branch of public health that takes viral transmission as the as the sort of sum total of public health concern then these other dimensions um, go out the window. And so, of course, we've neglected to see drug overdoses. I mean, one of the sad little facts in area where I live is that, you know, the, the elimination of childcare basically led to increase in drowning of little kids who were wandering around the house while their parents were desperately trying to do their jobs remotely during the summer. And there are a lot of pools and backyards in Phoenix and, wow. and, you know, but th- these are the sort of these are the the unknown consequences because the ways of knowing public health risk were defined and delimited in particular ways. Yeah, and, and you know, you know, in, when in my it, my neck of the woods, I live in uh, in Virginia, and it gets very hot and humid in the summer. And I remember I was walking in the park, and I saw a bunch of little kids in a ninety-five degree day with ninety percent humidity, all wearing masks as they were outside. I mean, they weren't inside, they were outside and there was plenty of space and so forth. And I thought, my gosh, we're going to be just creating a generation of children who think that uh, everything is going to hurt them and kill them. And, and we're not allowing children to be children. That That's not something, again, that science can deal with. Yeah, I mean, I think these are, I think these are real worries. Other countries, it's, it's instructive to look at other countries um, that took 
different approaches on both of those vectors for, you know, the one vector being, well, the priority is for children to remain in school because for, you know, educational development, psychosocial development, all of these different dimensions, school is a crucial infrastructure. So we cannot take that away. We must what, what, protect it. What was one it. of the countries that did that? Well, I, I mean, there's, there, so different countries have handled things differently. Um, I think that we in the U.S., were the were quick to pull our kids out of school and slow to put them back in yeah. whereas other countries have closed down schools for periods of time in the UK and Germany and so I think if I'm correct if I'm remembering correctly Sweden never closed down That's right. schools um there was a sense that there's a kind of fundamental obligation to the children to educate the children but but also and this is interesting Sweden actually has an absolute technocracy in the domain of public health. A public health administration is by law delegated to the public health authority, which is in effect sovereign, that makes its makes policy on the basis of expertise. Um, and yet, at the same time, because there's a more expansive notion of public health that it's responsible for, it's not just viruses and bodies, it's well-being more broadly. Um, all of these other dimensions, the ones you were mentioning and more come into the picture. And so if I understand correctly, there was a public health judgment that school closures, that there was not sufficient evidence that schools would be would be loci of significant transmission to authorize the closure of schools um, preemptively because of the costs, the other kinds of public health costs that would the be the weighing and balancing of various benefits and burdens. And of course, as it turned out, you know, the influenza model, which was basically what was being used in making judgments about schools, um, proved incorrect. At least it did until the Delta variant came along. Um, for So for much of the time during which schools were closed in the U.S., you know, there, there was actually relatively low risk of intra-school viral transmission. And, and a lot of that also got caught up in politics, for example, and we're not going to get into this, but the teachers' unions and and uh, and various uh, you know uh, campaigns and and President Trump and all of that stuff I think just kind of polluted uh, the kind of more dispassionate uh, uh, view that you you were describing happened in Sweden. I, I think it's worth remembering though that in a sense Sweden had built an infrastructure like had significant investment in public education um, that meant that the system itself was not fragile. I think you're pointing to a host of different, the, the pandemic created the conditions for perturbations from mo multiple directions. I mean, if the thing was shaky on several legs, you know, multiple legs started breaking at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's interesting that the, the pandemic uh, showed us our weakness as a society rather right. than our strength. Our pre-existing vulnerability. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and you've written about that, um, a health policy requires trust, you know, for, for the, from the people uh, to the people who are providing expertise, um, not just with regard to facts, but institutions. And I think that's an important point. Describe what you mean by that, because, because the, um, the, the distrust of institutions across our, our society, and particularly in the health and science sectors, I think is a real problem going forward. Right. So, so, uh, I mean, trust is a complex idea. Let me say a word about that in a minute. But I think that um, 
especially with respect to expertise, when there is public deference to expert to expertise, it's not because the public recognizes and affirms that the experts have the correct knowledge. Like the public certifies the facts that the experts are are you know putting forward. Rather, it's deference to those experts to themselves certify the facts. So it's always an institution before it's knowledge, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's a public relationship to knowledge. There's a public relationship to knowers. There's deference to the knowers who the, a, a society authorizes to know best. So, you know, I didn't test my drinking water this morning before I had a glass of it. I don't know about you. Right. Um, we, have, we have delegated to variety of regulatory authorities the authority to say, you know, what, you know, what can and can't be in the drinking water. Um, what le- what range of variation is acceptable? What level of testing is required, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can turn on the tap and drink a, a cup of water without without worrying about poisoning ourselves. Of course, there can be breakdowns. Flint, Michigan, of course, right. is a case in point. And when those breakdowns happen, then the institutions, which we're perfectly prepared to treat as black boxes, suddenly open up and we say, "What's gone wrong here? We delegated this responsibility to you. What? Where is the source of failure?" It becomes political, and rightly so. So I think that we have to, we tend to pretend that institutions are not part of the picture, but they are. They are constitutive of it. It's not that knowledge governs. It's institutions that know and are authorized to know that play a role in governance. And then the question becomes, what role? And those institutions, expert institutions, rely upon you know, a larger situation of political institutions in which there are the means to, to evaluate, to, well, to, to authorize, to delegate, but also to deliberate, to evaluate, to challenge and to contest. Um, and so, and so those political spaces um, in which those value-laden discussions can take place are crucial to authorizing and maintaining the legitimacy of, of, expert institutions. So trust. Trust is a tricky word because we say, well, we just need more trust. We need more trust in science. As though, you know, what what that sort of means is people need to stop complaining or stop resisting and acquiesce. And then when they acquiesce, it will be an expression of trust and then all the things will fall into place. I mean, actually, trust should be thought of not as the cause but the consequence of achieving robust relations between, well, political and scientific institutions. I think right? that's, that's well, I'm sorry to interrupt, we, we, I think that's what's been lost in the current discussion. So I think if we think of trust as what we call the achievement of robust and stable relations, where they are stable because they're not the subject of deep you know, a deep and divisive contestation, but rather the subject of relative consensus, um, you know, we, we, we can call that trust. But you achieve that not by saying, well, just trust us. You achieve that by earning the trust, by establishing the conditions under which people are inclined to defer. People feel as though they are, in, in effect, being taken care of, not being transgressed. And, you know, that... Trust is the result. And that also requires uh, the sense, let's say, on the part of of people who are to defer to people who have the expertise, that the people themselves are respected by 
the people with expertise. And I think that's a problem to do today. So this is an old problem. There's a scholar in my field of science and technology studies, a guy named Brian Wynn, who years and years ago um, coined this idea of the knowledge deficit, the knowledge deficit model, which is sort of deployed in, you know, modern forms of expert governance to say, well, you know, the the public doesn't understand, the public doesn't know what we know. um, And that's the source of contestation. You know, the public doesn't want to eat our genetically modified foods. It's because the public is ignorant of, of the science behind genetically modified foods. And that has sort of had two implications. One is pretty familiar. Well, we just need to educate the public, you know, better science communication, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all of which is, which is fine. So long as you don't think that that is the source of your political solution, because again, the problem is not a deficit of knowledge. Actually, it turns out that when publics become more educated in a domain of technological domain that they're distrustful of, they tend to discover further bases for distrust. They discover the incompleteness of knowledge, which of course is, it is always incomplete to a greater or lesser degree. Um, so, th- so one one vector is this sort of idea of education. The other is, well, t- uh, well, uh, uh, basically appropriation of authority. The public doesn't know, and therefore, when the public pushes back, the the source of their resistance is ignorance. You know, were they to be more knowledgeable, they would not express resistance, and therefore, we can ignore that resistance. We can treat that resistance as a political problem, as illegitimate. You know, I mean, there are lots of reasons why a, a citizen might be opposed to the introduction of um, genetically modified foods beyond, you know, ignorance about or misconceptions around um, its phys- their physiological implications for the, the health of the body. Right. You know, industrialization of agriculture, the 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 uh, um, introduction of regimes of intellectual property into a domain that has been, you know, the foundation of human civilization yeah. for millennia. Yeah, and and I mean, you see the same thing, for example, on climate change. You know, people may agree or disagree on the extent to which humans are causing climate change, and they also can disagree on the. Let's even say they agree on the human cause, on the proper solutions. That doesn't make them luddites. Right. Um, I, I want to get into L- some sp- L- luddism. Just as a little f- historical footnote, yeah. I mean, luddism is is actually mischaracterized in the in in exactly the same way. the The luddites were not afraid of technology. Right? right. They were taking the materialized expressions of of a political economic transformation that was disempowering them, and you know, smashing them. Well, they were to, afraid they to, weren't going to be able to support their families because of these changes. Right. I mean, it was it was about shifts in in political economy and therefore shifts in power. Exactly. It's about their marginalization. I, I want to get into some specific policies that you've dealt with, and and uh, in just a second. But I want to before we do that, discuss this question of science versus anti science. Uh, I think that misstates and and misapplies the very concept itself. Science isn't a creed; uh, it's a method. It's a method of, of determining uh, facts about the natural world. And yet when, when people may, for the uh, first time I heard it, for example, was during the embryonic stem cell debate, um, where people were making an ethical argument that it is not uh, right to destroy embryos for the purpose of using, create and destroy embryos for the use uh, in research 
That was an ethical argument. It wasn't a scientific argument. And yet many of the people who wanted to do that research came roaring in and saying, you're anti-science. Well, but that's not anti-science. Science is a method. Nobody, I don't know of anybody who would say, I don't believe in the scientific method of testing and, you know, falsification and, and dis and, uh, uh, disputation and debate and proposing hypotheses and defending hypotheses. Uh, and I think it turned that, that concept turned the issue of science from the idea it's a method into, uh, it's more of an ideology. Do you, do you, do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, my background is in history of science. And I, I think that the idea that science is a method is, you know, I mean, that's it, that is certainly makes sense as a kind of a gloss, but actually, you know, if one looks to the interior of science to ask how science gets done, mm-hmm. um, where science is not a sort of playbook that a bunch of people follow and then they're doing science, rather science is, you know, most fundamentally a social community, right? Oh, that's interesting. In which a shared language is spoken, in which there are shared norms. Um, you know, it's been a century since Robert Merton described what he saw as the norms that define the define science that are that are what constitute a scientific community, organized skepticism, sort of modalities of disputation, a sort of sense of egalitarianism. You know, these are. Um, Science is is community and practice before its method and knowledge. Mm. If you see what I mean, yeah, I and do see that. But, but me- it's it, let me interrupt you there. The, it yeah. seems like they're saying w- when you bring that up, you have to be part of the club in order to have skepticism. So okay, so that's a, this is a very interesting question. Then I mean, what makes one part of the club or not part of the club? And one of the observations made by another person in my field, a guy named Tom Gearin, um, long ago was that when describing when scientists do work they tend not to be focused on science they tend to be focused on whatever particular matter matter and particle physics they're concerned with or whatever particular issue in cell biology right but when they when they start speaking in terms of big s science the way big s science gets described tends to be in terms of what is not science rather than what is science so it's what he called boundary work, the drawing of a boundary between what's in and what's out of this territory called science. And therefore, in a sense, who's a card holder, who has the entry card and who doesn't, um, where it's, what its authority is and where its limits of authority are and, and who is outside that authority and, and sort of can't speak to it. So I think one of the things that's important, the reason I brought up this issue about method it's worth keeping an eye on where that science non-science boundary gets drawn that that science extra science boundary and oftentimes that boundary is a you know science politics boundary or a science ethics boundary or a or a facts values boundary and those that distinction of course is an important distinction but the boundary moves Mm -hmm. and the boundary itself is contested so in the in the stem cell debates that you're talking about, yes, I absolutely agree. Those were those were matters of ethical disagreement, but they were simultaneously matters of scientific disagreement. Like, how sure do we need to be that alternatives won't work in order to authorize, in order to make the consequentialist judgment that you know embryonic stem cell research, in spite of its ethical costs, is worth it given its potential. Um, benefits for 
for um, human health. This was sort of one of the framings. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I think what a lot of that came down to was the assertion of scientific authority over questions that could be formulated in ethical terms by transmuting those questions into epistemic terms by saying these are questions of knowledge and therefore these are questions for experts these are our questions you can hold what beliefs you wish you can have what values you want but when your values intrude into the space of science and say what sort of science should be done and why it's a pollution of science with politics it's a it's an inappropriate intrusion but really i think what's worth paying attention to there is how a boundary is getting drawn between what's the jurisdiction of science and what's the jurisdiction of of politics of individual moral belief or religious belief etc it was it was That's almost to me an imperialism um that expansion of of the science what is considered the 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 realm of science uh it was almost a cultural imperialism i mean you had president bush and and i was really deeply involved in this uh this uh debate societal debate he he put in a very modest proposal really a policy which basically said we're not going to um uh, fund uh through the federal government the creation of new st uh, embryonic stem cell lines after august 2001 uh but that uh, the federal government will pay for embryonic stem cell research uh, for all those lines currently in existence. And uh, it struck me that at the time that the President Bush was trying to reach that kind of uh, consensus policy that you have described. That he wasn't, he was saying, well, I'm not going to say we can't, you know, it's not a ban, which sometimes it was described as. Um, I'm going to certainly allow funding for this research. At the same time, I'm going to acknowledge that there are tens of millions of people in this country who think that there's a real problem with destroying embryos and treating them as if they were, you know, potter's clay or, or uh, you know, a, a corn crop. And, and that attempt to achieve consensus actually caused greater discord than, uh, around a, a scientific issue than anything else in my lifetime. And it struck me that, that it's because for the first time in a significant way, or at least in a, 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 a perhaps a better way to state it would be a loud way, there was some pushback on what the, quote, scientists, close quote, wanted to do. And, and that enraged that particular sector. And I think that that was a science-religion conflict in the sense of a caricatured science and a caricatured religion. Yeah, really caricature, what that conflict yeah. really what that conflict was about were questions of what in effect public and private of what of what sorts of um, inputs what sorts of judgments belong in the space of public decision making especially and in particular vis-a-vis -vis science. And one of the things that I think played out in that controversy, but similarly in other controversies, was this sort of presumption that science, you know, science is universal and therefore it's intrinsically public. Like scientific reasons are more compelling in public judgment than ethical reasons, mm -hmm. especially where those ethical reasons appear to be linked to, to, um, 
matters of, of, of personal moral commitment or religious belief, which then get characterized as, as private matters. You can, you know, hold whatever views you want, so long as you don't inject them into public policy. But of course, you know, democratic policies have to make judgments about what is right and good. Right. And, and that involves the entire population. We all have a stake involves, and a say. Right. And, and the source of the bases for those judgments are not somehow handed down in advance. They are maybe collected together under shared constitutional commitments, say shared public moral vocabularies and so forth. Um, but the question of whose judgments trump, whose, whose uh, judgments will hold sway is a democratic question. Right. right. It, and, and, and the, the assertion, I think the way of the right way to understand what happened with the, with Science, the scientific voices that were speaking loudly in that debate and their assertion of scientific authority was that they were seeking to play arbiters. They were seeking to play arbiter of the right way to conduct a democracy, which is an appropriation of authority. Yeah, it and, an it was, and they sought to exclude um, people who are not part of the club, to use that term I used before. Now, what's, Ben, what's really interesting to me is you know that that debate has waned uh and and the embryonic stem cells have not achieved uh, what the, their proponents hoped which isn't isn't the point of what i'm about to bring up but but that there has actually been a tremendous advance in biotechnology exponentially beyond anything that the embryonic stem cell debate brought up for example uh crispr's uh, gene editing which you've been uh following very closely and yet, despite uh, what I think is the most powerful technology since the splitting of the atom, which is the ability to literally edit the genome of any living organism and cell, there's been almost no discussion, no debate of the kind we saw with regard to embryonic stem cells. Uh, it's almost as if everything has been put off in, a, uh, in its own cubicle and the public is, is basically on the outside and not even allowed to look in because it's opaque. Um, why do you think that there's a difference now between what was less portentous, the embryonic stem cell debate, and this idea of genetic engineering of human beings? Yeah, so it, it's a perplexing issue, I think, actually, because I think that the issues that were at stake in a significant, but as you're suggesting, modest way, or maybe better way to put it is a circumscribed way in the stem cell debates are much more profoundly at stake in present developments in biotechnology, certainly with respect to genome editing, as you're suggesting, but also in a whole variety of other domains. For example, you know, the development of synthetic embryos, the development of techniques for what's called in vitro gametogenesis, the production of human gametes from stem cells in vitro, which would in principle allow a kind of infinite supply of embryos. What, what for, does that mean in real people's language? <laughs> it, it, it means, it means if you, you know, if you've got to, if in order to make embryos in a laboratory, you've got to get some woman to agree to go through a invasive and unpleasant procedure to provide a, a handful of eggs you're going to make a lot fewer than if you can grow, you know, a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand eggs in the laboratory 
in the space of a month. In other words, you can take somebody's, uh, let's say, skin cells and turn them into stem cells and then turn them into eggs or sperm. So not yet, but that's the that's direction the idea. things are going. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that the issues that were at stake around the stem cell debates are much more profoundly at stake and they're, they're you know, coming down the, the line like a freight train. And there's less discussion. And so, yeah. And yet, and yet there's less discussion. You know, how to make sense of that. Some things kind of capture the, the public eye and imagination and, and others don't. Some things... You know, there's there's a mode of giving reassurances about this. We're you know we're, these things will only be used for the good, and so you know don't worry about it. Of course, there has been enormous interest in the in the um, one major scandal in this domain, namely the production in China of of three um, genetically engineered children, and I think we should actually take that as a barometer of of public interest and concern. Yeah. Tell, tell us what happened. Uh, this is cause I know that you were, uh, you, you've covered this and were you weren't part of the experiment, but that you were certainly looking at it and, and, uh, you, uh, actually had interactions with the scientist who did this. Uh, his name was he Jack Q also known as JK. What did, what did he do? And, and what was the reaction? So, so what he did was to take um, embryos right at this, essentially right at the moment of fertilization and to inject um, CRISPR-Cas9 molecules into them in order, to, in order to make a change to a certain gene that is um, implicated in susceptibility to HIV. He saw this as genetic vaccination, as as producing children that would be immune to HIV because they had, a, in each case, they had a father who was HIV positive. Uh, the reaction, this was... This Let me was, interrupt uh, you just real quick. Yep. Because of he did it on early embryos, those changes would were called germline right. uh, changes. And that means they pass down the generations if these children have children, correct? Yes. So the, the change is done to, to a single cell or a few cells. Right. And so it, let's say a single cell, that cell gives rise to all the other cells in the resulting person's body, including germ cells, which means that change is passed on to their children and their children's children and on down through the generations. And and he the changes he made um, also might have had some adverse consequences. Yeah, I mean, that that is debated and there's some evidence to suggest that there was also some evidence to suggest that it would have enhancing consequences beyond, um, beyond, uh, immunity to HIV. In fact, what he did was produce a, um, mutation that is not common is not known in existing human populations. It's close to one that is in existing human populations. Um, but, but uh, you know, it sort of botched it in that regard, and so what it, what its meaning will be with respect to HIV immunity is unknown, and for that matter, with respect to everything else, will these kids be healthy or not? And he was he was engaging in in human experimentation with this experiment. Yeah, absolutely. He was these embryos became people, and our people, and and the reaction, as I recall, was there was an. Um, I think he thought he was going to be applauded. But there was actually quite the contrary reaction. There was a, a great hue and cry, 
But from where I sat, the human cry wasn't about what was done, but when it was done, that it was not done at a time at, after the society or people had been prepared for this great new leap in, in, uh, in regenerative medicine, if you will, but that it was done at a time that took people by surprise. And so, you know, the, the groundwork hadn't been laid uh, for getting people to acquiesce. Am I being, again, too cynical here? I don't think so. He, I mean, so it's a really fascinating story, but to, to sort of give it in a very quick nutshell, the immediate reaction to the news that he had undertaken this project was to condemn it and to label him a rogue, a rogue scientist who had done this, you know, contrary to international scientific consensus. But as you're pointing out that that scientific consensus was not that it should not be done. It was that it should not be done yet. Right. But what, what he rightly recognized was that there was, although he didn't think about this very critically, was there is a sense within the scientific community that the scientific community would say when yet had arrived, when the time, you know, when the time had come. And he had a lot of discussions in private with major figures in, in genome editing and beyond. And most of those, many of those were affirmative. In, in many cases, he gave them a complete picture of what he was planning to do or was in the process of doing um, and received remarkably little criticism or opposition. Why? Because there's a presumption that this is the future. The future is coming. And, you know, it takes a, it takes a brave person to, you know, put their neck out and be the first to push things across the Rubicon. But, you know, once it's across, we can follow. And indeed, it was remarkable. I was in Hong Kong where this news came out um, for the second international summit on human gene editing. And yeah, he announced really, it at that conference, right? It, he, he, in effect, announced it at that conference. But, but it took virtually no time, less than 24 hours from when the news came out to when the major figures, the leading voices in international science in this domain were saying, you know, that, that this was a, this shouldn't have been done. It was a violation, but now that it's been done, it's time for us to say how it should be done and to map out a pathway for doing it. Right. So whereas three years before they had said it should not be done unless there is, unless it's proven safe and effective and there is broad societal consensus, those were the words, that it is, that it is right and acceptable. It went, it shifted to a, in effect, a scientific consensus about what steps need to be taken in order to, to take things responsibly across this line. And it's the club members deciding when things can be done and, and the rest of society has been, you know, the idea of consensus that you've described has, has been pushed out of the picture. I think the, the thing that's worth noting there is that the, this is a small group of people appropriating the authority to say what responsibility means. I mean, whether it, not just whether it should be done, but how it should be done, why it should be done, in the name of what good it should be done. That's the authority to declare what is right and good. That's a significant authority to appropriate. Yeah, you, you use a term in that regard called sovereign science. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, so I, I've used this concept to um, describe the ways in which, in a variety of different domains, the institution of science 
um, asserts its jurisdiction over matters of judgment. Um, and, you know, there is, there's a sense in which over the course of the last 40 years, especially in the biosciences, a kind of norm of self-regulation has developed. We should make judgments. Science should regulate itself and should make judgments about what kind of science is good science and what kind of science is bad science. And of course, that makes very good sense to a significant degree. You know, peer review is in effect that kind of self-regulation. Um, grant review is that this is worth funding. This is not worth funding. This is a good, you know, foundation for this hypothesis. This is not, etc. This is good evidence in support of this conclusion. This isn't. But that's that's quite different from broader judgments about what's worth doing and what's worth knowing and what kind of risks are worth taking in the name of of producing knowledge, technique, and technology, and. And the kind of claim to sovereignty, the claim that science is sovereign unto itself and and no one shall intrude into that sovereign space. I mean, that's a, a an assertion that's made with increasing frequency and increasing number of domains. And, and, and that strikes me as, as a form of clericalism, only instead of religion, it's science. You uh, wrote about something that really caught my eye, and that is a um, interaction that... Um, uh, the scientist huh, um, had with James Watson, uh, who, of course, is the famous scientist. I believe he uh, he with um, uh, Crick discovered the uh, DNA helix. Correct? Yeah. And and um, Watson said to to huh, make people better. That's eugenics. So who huh, was at a meeting with Watson? Huh's accent is thick. Watson couldn't understand it. Watson said, write your questions down. So, so he asked him, you know, when you discovered the structure of DNA, did you think that we would eventually modify it in human beings? Yes. Then he asked, do you think that it should be used not just to treat disease, but to prevent disease, right? Which is what he was doing. He was right. making an enhancement, what he considered an enhancement to these future children, to these, embry these embryos that would grow into babies, um, to give them something that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Watson responded, make people better. I think that the ambiguity of that phrase, in a sense, the aspiration of medicine is to heal, right? To right. make the sick better. But who makes the judgment about where sickness ends and, and something else starts, about what better means anyway? I think and that, eugenics, you know, the evil eugenics movement of the 19th and up yeah. to the mid 20th century, eugenics means better in birth. Right. I mean, exactly. it is it is the the hubris to say that we can decide which people have greater value, which people have lesser value, which people are more important, which people are less important, which people are um, superior and which are inferior. I, I think that's incredibly dangerous and again goes beyond the pure realm of science. It's a making judgments about which lives are more and less desirable right. for the people having who, who are experiencing those lives. But, you know, it's really actually those who facilitate those lives and the existence or non-existence of those people. And, it, you know, I've noticed in terms of just, for example, the, the, I call it a search and destroy mission um, to find people with down syndrome in utero and not let them be born. I mean, that is a form of eugenics that I think is actually hurting society because, you know, when, in an era when we are 
uh, told diversity matters, inclusion matters, we're taking the ultimate uh, actions to exclude a, a whole class of people who actually bring great joy and sweetness to, to, to human society. I mean, I think that building a medicine around notions of what kind of people there shouldn't be is it's a pretty dangerous form of medicine. Who was not treating patients. He was creating people of a particular sort. He was engineering people. And I think that there's this easy slippage to think of, you know, well, the future as yet non-existent person who is affected by some genetic disease should be treated. But in fact, you're bringing into being a person in this moment of selection or the moment of of genome editing, you're bringing into being a person and the image of the kind of person you think that there should be in order to avoid the existence of a kind of person that you think that there shouldn't be. Yeah. And that's the ultimate in uh, arrogance as far as I'm concerned. And it does away with the concept of universal human equality, uh, which is incredibly dangerous and, and, and subversive. Uh, There's so much more I'd like to talk to you about, but we're beginning to run a little short on time. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about what you're, you know, you you haven't just (laughs) screamed into the uh, darkness. You have actually tried to light some candles uh, and you have some some ideas on how we can kind of uh, overcome this lack of consensus, this kind of um, a growing division between, quote, science, close quote, and, and the rest of society. And in science, which is um, a perhaps the most uh, noted uh, science journal in the in the world, you co-authored a piece, and and you you wrote that quote: "We must first recognize that trust cannot be produced on command." You you've already mentioned that. I think that's important. And and a few weeks ago, um, uh, when when this post, Dr. Fauci actually said, "You know, criticizing me is the same thing as criticizing science." That kind of thing has to go, it seems to me. But uh, but let's also look look at your proposal for a president's council on advisors on science and technology and society. This is not just the usual idea of okay, you know, I'm a president, I'll create a, a council, they'll rubber stamp the policies and, and proposals I want to proceed with. You actually have a different idea here. Tell us about that. Yeah. So as this piece was in draft um, or it was as it was pushing towards publication um, the Biden administration you know announced its science advisor um, it, which it elevated to a cabinet position um, Eric Lander a quite pr- prominent uh, figure in the world of genetics um, but also announced a, a deputy science advisor for science and society um, that's occupied by a social scientist, Alondra Nelson. Um, I, I mean, I think this is, as we indicate in this article, is a, a major step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Why? Because if one thinks of science advice as just bringing in the right expertise at the right moments, well, okay, but you have to know what the right expertise is and what the right moments are. And a lot of what we've talked about today are the sort of I think the right way to put it is cultivated blindnesses Mm. that expertise, at least certain forms of scientific expertise, policy relevant expertise has developed um, because, you know, there's a notion that if you get the evidence right, evidence-based policy follows straightforwardly. 
But in fact, you know, understanding the ways in which certain, you know, approaches to expertise have had consequences for society, understanding the ways in which these are necessarily bound up with value-laden questions, mm -hmm. which are political questions, which require institutional capacity to contend with, um, integrating, situating scientific expertise and questions uh, uh, related to science and technology in a broader politics, in which questions of the good are at stake. Those are crucial challenges for democracy at present. And, and an approach to science policy that tries to separate it from politics, to insulate it, to treat it as though it's outside of and above politics is not only false, but is, is destructive, is anti-democratic. It, it's, it sows the seeds of, of uh, conflict and And what you're talking about, it strikes me, is that you are actually seeking to broaden these discussions outside of that club, as we discussed, toward a, toward a, um, a more uh, holistic or more um, societal-wide conversation. Absolutely. And that's how you, that's you, you think and hope uh, that we can get back to a place where we, uh, and I do think we were there more in the past than we are now, not, of course, 100%, but where there is some consensus as to what are the areas we want to benefit and what are the boundaries that we don't want to cross. And, and it strikes me that the, the uh, biotechnology community needs to pause so we can have this conversation. It's not something you can do in a week, uh, but they seem unwilling to do that. I think one of the problems we face is that it's like the advent of a new technology is the warrant for having a conversation. The conversation should precede and encompass whatever scientific and technological developments come. Because, for example, to go back to germline genome editing, questions of human integrity are not questions about CRISPR-Cas9. It's the other way around. The technologies and the questions that attach to them should be subsidiary to larger questions of the good, the, the basic foundational, fundamental, normative questions that societies, that democracies have to contend with perpetually around, you know, wh what lives warrant protection of what sorts, what are the, what are the um, boundaries of, of freedom? When do you transition from liberty to transgression? In a sense, it's almost like what you're talking about, almost like what the civil rights movement achieved. The civil rights movement basically said a, a, the good in society is universal human equality. And that there should be no uh, invidious distinctions made among people. You're talking, I now it's obviously not the same, but that kind of discussion where we we come to a a general societal consensus on what produces the most beneficial and free society uh, in around these issues of biotechnology and science. So I like the notion of essentially contested concepts. Universal human equality is an essentially contested concept because the question of whether it has been achieved, as you know, I mean, as, sure. the, as the civil rights movement shows us, it's an ongoing movement in effect. But, but it, um, I think it did, it did achieve the idea that that is the goal. I think most people yeah. would accept that that is the goal. So, you know, setting an aspiration and then elaborating it and drawing upon robust institutions to do it. No, it's, it hasn't been totally smooth sailing, but but uh, 
that's a much more democratically affirmative approach than saying this is not your business stay out of it you don't know yeah, you don't know to enough to have to a view know whether here. this is right or wrong good or bad let us decide and as or, you or or which is a similar or a similar move is to say the technology is not there yet we don't need to talk about right this. so that you know then there's a there's a universal consensus that this shouldn't happen yet yeah and then all of a sudden the yet goes away but, and, we, but we haven't done the work that needs to be done in order to bring ourselves to that. Place. That's right. And now it's here and you just, you, there's nothing you can do about it. It's, um, it's a fait accompli. Yeah. Right. And so to go back to your, where I, I sort of questioned your characterization of the public as saying, this is science. I don't have anything to say about it. I think that, you know, we do experience technological transformation of an extraordinarily rapid and world transformative sort. And we really have nothing to say about it often except to experience it once it comes. I mean, this is the story of social media, for example, right? Yep. And, and, but that is too often because, you know, we, we don't have the expertise. We're not supposed to be enter into that inner circle. We make judgments about, you know, the products of science and technology, not about the, the commitments, aspirations, and processes that produce them. But that's a, you know, science should, science, science that's in the service of of the society of which it's part must be subject to, uh, I internal to, um, the processes of judgment about what is right and good and desirable for that society. Uh, that is otherwise we could become authoritarian, as you've written. I mean, I think that yes. I mean, I think that it's it's one way or another corrosive to the fabric of democracy to locate this kind of ultimate authority, which is a form of political authority outside of politics. Well, I, I really appreciate this conversation we've had um, because I, I think it's important that we draw people into uh, these very important discussions and, and let people know that they have a right to learn about it and have opinions about it. And I know that that's been the work that you've been engaged in, and I think there are precious few uh, in the academy and in bioethics and in biotechnology that are actually doing that. So I really appreciate your efforts. Thank you. And, and what's next on your agenda? <laughs> you mean this morning or in life more generally? <laughs> in your work, we'll say. Um, well, you know, one of the, one of the projects that I'm putting a lot of energy to at present is, is, a, a, an effort to build a kind of, experimental space for doing some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, we're calling it the Global Observatory on Genome Editing. So it's using genome editing as a particularly crucial and timely entry point into a larger set of questions about how we as a human community contend with questions about the technological future and about its meaning for humanity. Or maybe the better way to put it is the modes of, 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 uh, understanding and governing the human future that should inform um, the traject technological trajectories that we put ourselves on. And so um, that project, which is nascent and is experimental, um, seeks to create space for forms of deliberation that tend not to take place and for gathering conversation partners who tend not to speak together because, you know, a, a, a scientific academy establishes a 15 member committee to write a report that is peopled by, you know, 95% molecular biologists. And it just sort of follows the predictable patterns over and over again. And people in effect end up talking to themselves. So that's a, that's a, 
a current significant project, an attempt to intervene in some of these patterns and explore ways of doing business differently. I hope that succeeds because I think it's important. Uh, and, and I thought of one last question as, as you were discussing it. You're a professor and you, you're interacting with young people and you're teaching. How, what are young people thinking about this? Yeah, so I teach uh, in a life sciences department. It's, I, I teach at a very large university um, in a, one of its largest majors. Uh, and, you know, I teach a large undergraduate course in bioethics, which is basically about many of the issues that we've explored today um, and, you know, comes back to this point to, you know, the question is not just what is good for us, but who is the us? Who is the we that is making those judgments? And what are the processes? What are the institutions? What are the kind of normative commitments through which we make those those judgments? Um, I mean, it's my students tell me that it's pretty different from anything else that they've gotten in their scientific education. Yeah. And yet it is essential to education in science and its place in modern society yeah so yes i mean that i think is i see that as one of you know the very important domains and, of and, my and work are, are they um, understanding the import uh, of of this kind of concept my sense is yes absolutely good these are not complex ideas to wrap one's head around that societies have to make judgments about how they should live and they have to make judgments about how they should make those judgments. I mean, that is, after all, the project of democracy. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a really good way to end this. And I'd love to talk to you further about that uh, particular project in a future episode. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you, Ben. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.